Good morning. I have a bit of a cold and have had for the last week or so, and so I'm uh, going to be a little bit nasally. I'm going to move this too. Hope you don't mind. How many of you were here last week? Let's hear a shout or hear a cheer or a woot. That was awesome. It was like a an Ewok in there, I think. I love Ewoks. They're fuzzy little creatures. Uh, it was really awesome last week. Taylor spoke. And, you know, it's kind of funny how the tables turn, like tables. Um, I'm a table guy now. You guys notice that? I'm just, I'm a table guy now. Last week I wasn't a table guy. This week I'm a table guy. Um, but Taylor spoke last week, and this week he's doing sound. So he goes from the front to the back. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. And there he is in the back. But he did such a fabulous job. We're in this series. As you guys, many of you know, um, we're calling it Believe, which is on the Apostles' Creed. And uh, so he got the wonderful task of speaking about, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. And I wanted to point out that he actually never talked about being born of the Virgin Mary. I don't, did you guys notice that? I was like, he's like, I talked about miracles. I'm like, that's a cop-out, dude. You didn't talk about being born of a virgin. So... So I have to bat clean up, I guess, this week. Um, no, you know, I can have a mic, too, back here. Oh. I just, you know, if we're going to be throwing shade. Oh, yeah. Yay, that's right. But he did, he did actually paint a picture of God in such a way, and, and this is what we've been trying to do this whole series, is we're trying to paint what the creed does, what the Bible does, is it paints a picture of who God is and who we are, Right? And we haven't even got to the who we are part yet. We're dealing with who God is. And we've painted this immense picture of this vast God who for the universe, I mean, just, he spoke it into existence. He, 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 he is able to hold this whole universe, all of creation as though it's a speck in his hand. And he's just so immense and so powerful. And, and, and he can control the, the things of our world. He can control the body. He can, he can knit back together um, what's broken in a body. He can cause things to come to life that were long dead. It's just this mind-boggling, immensely beautiful, immensely enormous God. And yet, and yet, he is so intensely personal, right? He is so intensely close to each one of us, not just to all of humanity. He isn't just like, I love humanity. He's like, I love humanity and I love Simon. I love humanity and I love Phil. Not to do the same family, because he loves other people too. Um, he loves Janice, and, and you know, it's each one of us. You could just insert your name there. He loves you intensely, personally. He has every right, this God of ours, to rule and to reign and to command and to order. He could, if he wanted to, if he chose to, he could turn us all into robots and just say, you will do what I say, and yet he chooses not to because he made us in his image and gave us the, the ability to choose, just as he has the ability to choose. He, he commands our wills and our affections, and yet he doesn't force us to love him, and he doesn't force us to choose his way. But he chooses instead to love us personally and to come and become one of us. So that's what the virgin birth is all about, is that God came near. God came in the flesh. It was miraculous. It was incredible. It was hopeful. It was wonderful. It was absurd. But that the God of the universe, this immensely enormous creator of all that we could ever know, that fills everything, would fill a little tiny baby, sounding just like that, would cry, 
Mess's manger. I'm waiting. That one's a slow roller right there. It was a slow roller. Mess's manger. Would have to learn how to walk. Would have to fall and skin his knees. Would have to learn how to respect his parents. How to communicate. How to talk. How to love. He would experience everything that we know to become a man and to be one of us, to know our life, and not just that, but to initiate God's great rescue plan for all of humanity. You can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, every other religion in the world, you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, that makes sense. You know, it just, it's, it's logical from a human perspective, a lot of these things. And then some of them are just plain weird. But this stuff is like, if I'm writing a story, I can't imagine this stuff because it is not human. It is divine in nature. It is not like me. It is not like us. It is like God. You can't make it up. It's beyond our capacity to dream it. So this series, this whole series, starts with this whole God the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And now we're camping for a few weeks on Jesus, right? We've been talking about God. And then last week we started, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord born of the Virgin Mary. So we're in now week three of camping on this third person of who God is, Jesus. And you'll notice that Jesus gets the most play in the creed, right? Of all the lines of the creed, if you're looking at the back of your bulletin notes, you can read the creed there. There's this whole middle section. He gets all the play time. He's right in there. And, and then the Holy Spirit, kind of like if you're reading about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he just like basically gets a, a line. It's almost like, oh yeah, we forgot about him forgot about the Holy Spirit, but we're going to get to whole, spend some good time talking about the Holy Spirit too. And we're going to talk about this today, this God's rescue plan. And this week, I get the overwhelming pleasure and the completely impossible task of talking about the single darkest line in the whole creed. I mean, it is just, there is nothing good happening here. When you read it, you're like, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. You're like, it's huge, it's big, you know, and then he was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, that's weird. And now we get who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, was dead and buried. He ascended, descended into hell. So you can imagine when we leave today, we're all going to be very encouraged, right? You know, it's like, this is, sounds like the most fun. And it, yeah, it was like, I was talking to Emma this morning. She's like, yeah, all of our songs are going to be really sad and sorrowful this morning because of those lines. The good news is, it isn't as sorrowful and sad as you would think it, think it would be. So we're preaching on the creed, but we're not actually preaching the creed, right? We've said this before. We are preaching what? I got one person that said it, and I think it was my daughter, so that doesn't count, right? It was my wife. Okay, it was what? You guys have the same voice now. Um, so it was my family. My own family said it, so that means you guys need to pick up on it. So we're not preaching the creed. We are preaching what? That's right. And our goal in preaching the creed and in, in preaching the Bible and using the creed as a, a launching point to do that is that you might believe. That you might believe. And that that believing might begin to change your actions. Might begin to change your living. Might begin to change your family situations. Might begin to change the breaks in relationships that you've experienced. Might begin to break the addictions that you're walking under. Might begin to break the power of sin and darkness which we just sang about. Now, you might believe what these Christians and us have believed for thousands of years. And you may not. You may be far from God. You may be just exploring. But this morning, we're going to be dealing with some very tender, very difficult subjects, and some very, sub very difficult subjects that we don't want to talk about. So I want to encourage you as we engage in this, and as we go to the Scripture, 
that you would just be with an open heart and an open mind, and that God would speak to you wherever you're at about what he has done for you, about what we sing about, about what we deeply believe, about the heart and soul of Christianity this morning. So if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 24, it's, it's the end of the book of Luke. So again, if you go toward the middle of your Bible, head left, you start seeing words you recognize like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, normal names, not like Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Those are weird words, right? Who has that name? And these are normal names, so Luke will be the third one in. These are the Gospels. These are the stories of Jesus, okay? These are the stories of Jesus' life, four different perspectives on his life from people who either knew him or knew lots of people that did know him personally. Luke is the, the gospel writer who also writes the book of Acts. So this guy is a historian. He is writing a historical perspective on who Jesus was, what historically took place, and then after Jesus ascends and goes into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, the first church explodes, and that's what he's writing all about. So we're going to be looking at verses 44 through 49. I'm reading from the ESV, chapter 24. I'm reading from the ESV just because it's a really nice, inexpensive, good translation. So... Uh, Follow along with me on the screen or in your notes or wherever you need to. Then he said to them, as Jesus speaking to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, you might want to underline that or circle that word suffer. That the Christ should suffer. And that on the third day, rise from the dead. And then I want you to circle this word here. This other and. There's another and here. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus, I pray this morning, just as you opened the minds of the disciples on that day long ago, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand this dark, painful, even depressing part of your story. I pray that you would help us to grasp the beauty of this darkness, the love and the act of the violence and the hope that comes through life in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Occasionally, I might sniff. You guys okay with that? I'm just, just, that's where I'm at. I'm sniffing this morning. All right. Just a little context to this passage. This, this passage is happening after the events of the cross, right? Jesus has been betrayed by one of his friends. In the middle of the night, he was captured in a garden by a bunch of ruthless thugs who had come with, with swords and spears to take this man who was never violent in his whole life. Who, who walked and just was healing people left and right, right? One of the disciples pulls out a sword, whacks off an ear of one of those soldiers, and he's like, ah, my ear! And it's like this horrible movie scene, there's blood everywhere, and Jesus is like, dude, put the sword away. And he picks up the ear, puts it back on his head, and they still arrest him. Craziness. Absolute craziness. They arrest him, and they take him, and he has to go before all the various levels of leadership in the Jewish, the Jewish church of that time, the, the Sanhedrin, and he is questioned, and he is tried, and and they can't really find anything wrong with him, but they really want him out of the way because he is becoming more and more prominent, and they are afraid that they're going to lose power. So they take him to Pilate. They take him to Pilate, and Pilate has to try him, and he's like, I see nothing wrong with this guy. I don't understand why you were trying him. 
So that's what's gone on at this point. And then they go through the whole trial process. He is crucified. He is dead. He is buried. And then he comes back to life. Crazy. We get to talk about that next week. Somebody gets a really good sermon next week. I'm telling you, it's going to be awesome. And so he comes back to life, and here he is, and he walks through a wall, right? The disciples are hiding for their lives. They're scared to death. And he literally walks through a wall without leaving a hole, and he appears, and they just kind of like hang out. They just chill. They're like, whoa, what's going on? He's like, hey, I'm hungry. Can you give me something to eat? They're like, this guy's a ghost. Ghosts eat fish. I don't know, but let's give him a fish. They give him a fish. You know, Judas is, or Judas is long gone. Uh, James and John are like hiding under the desk somewhere. They're cringing in fear. And Jesus is like, hmm, this is delicious. And he's wiping his hand on his mouth. And, you know, he's just like eating this food. And he's like, guys, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a ghost. I'm alive. Touch me. Feel me. See that I am living. And then he begins to explain to them what's going on. He explains to them that the Christ, the Savior, right? The Savior King. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the rescuer. He is God's rescue plan. Had to suffer and to die. And they still don't understand it. All they understand is that Jesus, for the last three years, has been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's not far off. It's not somewhere else. It's right here, right in front of you. He's like, people are hungry. In the kingdom of God, there are no hungry people. So, boom, he feeds 3,000 people with fish, right? There are no sick people in the kingdom of God. So, boom, lame people are walking. Blind people are seeing. Deaf people are hearing. Demon-possessed people having demons cast at them. The demons are running away in fear. And these people are standing whole and clean. He says there is no death in the kingdom of God. And so he says, Lazarus, time to get up. Little girl, wake up. And he's like, these people are rising from the dead. This is what they know. But this is totally outside of their experience. Not just has he risen somebody from dead, but he himself has risen. I love how this text connects all the events coming together. He says, look, the Old Testament said this, the Christ had to suffer. The Psalms said the Christ had to suffer. The prophets, they said the Christ had to suffer. I suffered. I suffered. And now here I am, alive. I've been risen from the dead. But then he goes on to say that This had to happen so that the good news of the forgiveness of sins may be proclaimed to all the nations. So let's take a look at this. We're going to look at the creed, and we're going to look at this text. It says, first, thus it is written that the Christ had to suffer. It's what our line in the creed is all about, right? It's all about the suffering. It's all about the suffering. If you want to look specific details about what it looked like for Christ to suffer under Pontius Pilate, you just need to go to the book of John, chapter 18. We're not have time to go through it all. It is this long process. But in the end, when it comes out with, they have nothing to charge him with. They have nothing to charge him with. First, this thing says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate did not fly airplanes, in case you were wondering, as his name suggests. But rather, he governed Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. He worked for a regional ruler named Herod, and then above and beyond that for Caesar. And his whole job was to make sure that everybody was so scared that they didn't dare not pay taxes, right? They just wanted to make sure that you were so scared. You were so scared of the power of Rome. You were so scared of the spears of the soldiers. You were so scared of the, of the, the legions that you would pay your taxes. And it wasn't a particularly difficult job for them because you literally have hundreds and hundreds of really well-armed, bloodthirsty thugs walking the streets of Jerusalem at the time. You know, everybody was there. They were ready to pay. So he basically just kicked back and made sure that the taxes got where they needed to go. The religious rulers 
Having tried to get Jesus to break one of the laws by catching him in a lie, catching him in a heresy, trying to trip him up with some point of the law, they decided they had to do something, so they trump up charges, they bribe one of his friends to betray him, they make a midnight grab, and they march Jesus from one group of leaders to the next to try to get him charged with something, but nobody knew what to do with him. So they take him to Pilate. Again, not the airplane kind. It's his name, Pilate. And so they take him to Pilate, and Pilate, they, they won't even go in the house because they don't want to get dirty by the, by the standards of the religious leaders. They take Jesus, and Jesus gets drug inside the house. And generally in those days, like again, they want you to be afraid. So by this time, the, the soldiers had punched Jesus a few times just to come in the house. You know, it's like, welcome, Poo, right in the stomach. And they drag him in the house. And then Pilate questions him, and he goes back out the door. And he's like, why have you brought him here? I can find nothing wrong with this guy. I mean, you guys bring me people all the time. You bring me people that are thieves. You bring me people that are liars. You want them imprisoned. You want them beaten. I'm good with that, but this guy has done nothing. He's done nothing. So why are you wanting to kill him? You guys take him and go try him. And it's really kind of funny. Somebody was really, really quick on their feet. He said, why did you bring him to me? And they say, because if he wasn't evil, we wouldn't have bothered to bring him to you, right? If he, wasn't, if he wasn't evil, we wouldn't be bothering doing this. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you guys take care of this. He's like, no, 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 we can't take care of this because we can't execute anybody. So now Pilate knows it's serious. They want this guy executed, but nobody is saying why, and he can't find a reason. So he questions him, he asks him, he can find no reason. The religious leaders are insistent, so he sends them to be beaten. They take Jesus out back, and they use a cat of nine tails which is a whip of, of nine pieces of leather thong that they would roll in tree sap and glass and in stone and pottery shards, and they would whip a person. Now, these guys are experts. These guys are absolute experts. They know exactly how many times they can hit a person on the back and remove the flesh from their back, and the blood would pour from them, and they would know exactly how many times they could do that before the person would die, and they would stop one lash short. It's called the death sentence minus one. And so they took him out back. They beated him. They beated him? They beat him. And they whipped him. They tore the flesh from his back. And along the way, they blindfolded him, and they started punching him. And they're saying, prophesy and tell us who hit you. And then they grab his beard, and they pull out the hairs of his beard. Now, guys, if you ever got your beard hair, one hair caught in a zipper like this, one hair, and we're like, ah, you know. Jesus had, like, chunks of his hair pulled out. And the hair from his head, he was bruised. His face was swollen. His eyes were swollen shut. He was bleeding from his nose. His back was raw and bloody. And they put a robe upon him. And then they took a crown of thorns that they had twisted, long, two, three, four-inch thorns, and they cram it onto his head so that it pierces his skin. And he bleeds, head wounds bleed horribly. So he's bleeding profusely from his head. Then they take him back to Pilate, and Pilate takes him outside. Now, this is horrible at this point, right? suffering under Pontius Pilate, but Pilate is being merciful. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He's hoping to satisfy the crowd. So he takes Jesus back out, and he says, here he is. Here's, here's the man. You can have him back. And they don't, we don't want him. We want him to be crucified. And he's like, you know what? I, I don't want to crucify this guy. There's, there's, a, there's a tradition. There's a tradition, guys. You can still get out of this. I will give you one prisoner from all of my cells. You can have him. Here's Jesus. And they're like, no, we don't want him. We want him crucified. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas is a thief and a murderer. He is one of the worst of the worst. 
so they take Barabbas instead. And now they have Jesus, who is, in the words of Princess Bride, mostly dead. And they make him to carry a cross. And he is so bloodied, he is so beaten, he is so weak, he is so exhausted, just short of death, that he can't even carry his own cross, as other, so other men are made to carry. So they have to find somebody to carry it for him. In the process of this, Pilate gets a bowl of water and some soap, and he washes his hands. He says, I'm going to have no part of this. I'm not going to kill an innocent man. He washes his hands of the whole situation, and they take him to a hilltop to be crucified. All of this suffering that I just talked about is before the word crucified. And every bit of it is historical. It is not a biblical account that's been written up to make, make it seem worse. Right? There are multiple, multiple historical accounts outside of Scripture that explain this to us. That show us this is how Roman execution worked. This is how the Roman legal system worked. This is how the legionnaires worked. This is how the cat of nine tails worked. This is how they knew to go to one last short of death. This is how they treated people. They were ruthless to put the fear of Caesar into everybody that they ruled. All of that is before he was crucified, before he had to bear his cross. The suffering was so complete that he couldn't even carry that cross. So they take him to the hilltop. They place him on the board. They drive nails through his hands. They drive nails through his feet, and then they raise him up. And he is up on this cross, literally like this, and to breathe. They were so good at this stuff. They would raise their hands up like this so that they were hanging on their lungs. All of their weight would be hung over their lungs and they couldn't breathe. And they would have to stand up on the nail that had been driven through their ankles in order just to breathe. Crucifixion wasn't just death by a bloody death. It was suffocation, slow and painful suffocation. These are professionals. They do everything they can to humiliate, to hurt, to wound, and to otherwise make it the most awful death you could ever experience. And they were expert at it. And Jesus endured every bit of it. It's almost strange that that's become a decoration for us, right? I mean, it is. It's this symbol of execution. It's like the electric chair. We take the electric chair, and we're going to make a, you know, a charm bracelet out of it. We're going to take an electric chair and like, like get a tat on our arm of the electric chair. Like, isn't it gorgeous, guys? You see this? It's just beautiful. Look at that. Look at that guy being electrocuted in there. It's become something else, hasn't it? It's become, Jesus took this instrument of death and destruction and pain and suffering, and it's become a symbol of hope. It's become a symbol of life. It's become something glorious. So Jesus is hung on this cross, and there he is. Now the creed says that he died, and it's true. This is one of the points where people are like, oh, he probably didn't die. If Jesus you know, was seen alive after the whole crucifixion scene, clearly he didn't die. And that's what the Romans are thinking. He must have not died. But get this. So first of all, I told you, they're, they're professionals, right? These professionals, they not only have their own personal honor and, and you know, their fear of Rome to do, to work with here, but the punishment for failing to crucify somebody correctly was to endure it yourself. So these guys were going to make darn sure that Jesus was dead, right? They were going to make sure every person that they crucified was dead. Some of them means they had to break their legs with a hammer in order for them to not be able to stand up and to suffocate. For Jesus, he had already died. He released and says, Lord, why do you forsake me? And then he says, and into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. And he dies, and he's there and he's dead. And they, just to make sure, they take a spear and they ram it up through his ribs, between his ribs, to slice through his lung and into his heart. And they pulled it out, 
and water and blood came from it. There's all this medical stuff that goes in behind this that proves, I mean, this is death. He had already died. And then they take him down, and Romans, just to be sure, are going to make sure that he's dead. And then they take him and they bury him. He is dead. These guys know their job. They know how to make somebody suffer, and they know how to kill somebody, and they don't make mistakes. When he came off that cross, his heart was not beating. He was not breathing. It was over. It was over. So they take him down, and some men buried him in a tomb. A tomb is significant because it's not like a burial in a grave, right? A burial in a grave, you could like dig somebody out real fast in the middle of the night. But a tomb, there's only one way in, one way out, and it's not through the sidewalls. You've got to go through the front. They put him inside of a tomb. They arrange him for embalmment. They lay him out as though they're going to come back in a couple of days and fill him with spices and different things like that so that he doesn't stink and he's going to be embalmed just like kind of like we are today. And then the Roman soldiers who were with him, with this detachment of people, there's like three or four of them, they come into the tomb, they look at the body, he's wrapped, he's dead, he's prepared for burial. Then they, cut, they said, yes, everything's as it should be. They come out and they roll a gigantic rock in front of the tomb. And they put a seal on it, just like you would put a seal on a crate of goods that you were sending to somebody. You know, you're like, I'm going to send mom a pack of cookies. And I put my seal on the top of it. It's closed. It's wrapped. What's in here is in here. And we know that if you have unwrapped this and the cookies are eaten, you know, that safety seal you have, like on your jam or jelly, if that's broken, don't eat it, right? So they put a giant seal on this, this tomb, on the rock, so that they know, look, we put a body in here. It's the body of Jesus of Nazareth. We know he is dead. We know he is in here. And it is closed, and there is nobody getting into this thing. And then they set a guard outside of it. He was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried. And it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust, just like all the rest of us. Those are the facts of the story. That's the facts. That's what happened. It's depressing facts, isn't it? It's sad facts. But we don't want to talk about just facts today. I want to talk about what's behind the facts. What's going on underneath the facts? A lot of people, they hear these stories. They, they see the cross. They see it as a piece of decoration or a necklace that you might wear. And, and they, they wonder, you know, what does that, this instrument of death from 2,000 years ago, from Pax Romana, Romana, I don't know how you say that, Pax Roma, there it is, you know, the Roman peace. How does this symbol of death from Roman peace, how does it affect my life? And what does it have to do with me? I mean, really? There's, I, I have no connection to this. What does it have to do with me? What is this horrible death? How does it touch my life? Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again today, that something has gone terribly wrong with us. Not just us, but all of humanity. And we talked about the suffering and the, all the tragedy that's gone on in our world. You don't have to watch the news for very long. You don't have to open your news app too many times to, to see, like, this world's pretty messed up, right? Can I get an amen? I need, to need you guys to, like, wake up for a second and, like, actually be involved for all that. We don't have to look very hard to see that there is a mess in this world. But it goes deeper than just this world, right? It goes to us. There's a sickness inside each of us, and it usually manifests itself with a felt need. These are, these are the conversations we have with one another. Like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm all right. My marriage is kind of struggling right now. Or, oh, I'm all right, but I'm, you know, I'm really struggling financially. Or I'm, I'm struggling with this. Or I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with this addiction. Or I'm struggling with, 
with this pain, or my family's all messed up, they won't talk to me, I'm just, I'm struggling with these things. These struggles are really as big and as important and as powerful and as painful and, and real as they are, are really symptoms of something much larger. They're symptoms of something much bigger, a greater disease. The reality of those things, as significant as they are, is that they are not your ultimate issue. They're actually sprouting out of the ultimate issue that has been born into your life from the day that you were born, and from the day that your parents were born, and your grandparents were born, and your great-grandparents were born. From the get-go, you were born with a disease. Your ultimate issue is that you and I were created for a relationship with God and to live life with one another, and we are incapable of doing it because of sin. When sin sin entered the cosmos, it fractured our relationship with God, and it fractured our relationship with one another. It broke them apart and left them adrift and left us to try to figure out how to pull these things back together as best we can. And we try. So we're left hungry. We're left thirsty with no real way to satisfy ourselves spiritually, emotionally, physically. There's never enough. We always need more. So God makes a way. The only one who can. The only one who's powerful enough to make a way, to heal the brokenness and the fractures of our world. He makes a way. And that way is through Jesus. There's this big word, this big movie word we use to describe this. It's called atonement. Say it with me. Atonement. Doesn't that sound like a Western movie? I mean, it's like big black Stetson hats and six guns. It's like atonement. Chink, chink. Atonement. <coughs> Excuse me. Atonement is to set a wrong right. Atonement is to fix the problem. Atonement is about the death of the thing that separates us from God. The fractures of our relationships with Him and with each other. It's about setting those things straight as a doctor sets a bone. Kristen, our youth pastor, had broken bones. She had a broken elbow and they had to put her into surgery to repair the broken bones in her elbow. There was atonement in that morning to set it straight. But Biblically speaking, it's more than just setting something straight. It's righting a wrong. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a way of doing this. They said, look, you need to have an atonement for your sins. For all the fractures, all the breaks, all the stuff that you ever did wrong, every time that you thought poorly about somebody, every time you uh, committed adultery, every time you thought about committing adultery, every time that you stole, every time you thought about stealing, every time that you grabbed for more when it wasn't yours, all of these things that break relationship with all the people you know, and every time that you decided that you were God and you had command of your life and that you could do what you wanted to and that there was no other higher authority, every time you've ever decided these things, those things are separating you from God and they're separating you from your family on earth, the human, the human community. Those things have to be fixed. And so what they said we can do, God says, I got this idea. What we're going to do is we're going to kill that sin. We have, to, we have to kill it. We have to kill that wrong. And we need to take it out of you because if I kill that sin, you're going to die with it because it's so a part of you. So they would take a lamb. God says, get a lamb, a spotless lamb. Spotless meaning, you know, it was perfectly white or perfectly black. There was no white or black spots on it. And it was healthy and it was pure and it was at the right age. And you would go to the priest and you would confess your sins and you would lay your hands on this thing as you were confessing your sins. And then they would kill it. Exactly. 
They would kill it. They would scatter its blood upon the altar. They would sacrifice this thing, and you would walk away with your sins atoned for. It's pretty bloody. It's gruesome. It's horrible. But in that moment, the sin is killed. Except, is it? Is it really? Is it really? I think human condition, human history shows us that no matter how many times we try to atone for sin, every time we try to ask for forgiveness, every time we've tried to some sacrifice or some means to make ourselves right with each other or with God, the, the problem just comes back, right? We just do it again. I mean, that's what World War I was called the war to end all wars. It failed, right? It failed. Because then we had World War II, and then we had Korea, and then we had Vietnam, and we had Iraq, and then we had Iraq, and then we had Iraq, and then we had Iraq, right? Over and over and over again. In this moment, God is saying the sin is killed, and yet it keeps coming back. And here's the other thing about this. This had to be done every year, all the time, by every person in Israel. Now, I don't know, but let's say God really wanted to expand his relationship with humanity. Right? Let's say that he didn't want to just include the people of Israel, which were you know, a few hundred thousand people living in a small country in the Middle East. What if he wanted, like, I don't know, maybe to include the North Africans in that? How many more animals would have to die? What if he wanted to include the Greeks? Or heaven forbid at the time, the Romans. And you, know, you start adding these people in, and you get this pile of animals. Right? I mean, what if God wanted to extend his family through history and time to include not just the North Africans, but the Russians? And what if he wanted to include the Native Americans? What if he wanted to include the Mexicans? What if he wanted to include the South Americans? What if he wanted to include good old multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial Americans into his resurrection plan? Can you imagine the pile of animals and the amount of blood that would be required to, to deal with this, to deal with all of the brokenness of our world? And then the reality is it just deals with the symptom over and over and over again. Never the disease, because humans are prone to mess things up. When Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he took on the sins of the world and atoned for them. All of them. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Isaiah says, looking into the future, looking at Jesus, he says this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace with God fell upon him. And by his stripes, the tearing of his flesh, we are healed. It's Isaiah 53, one of my favorite verses. Then the creed says this, He descended into hell. I don't even know what to do with that, honestly. When I read that, I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, he went to hell? Did he stay there? Was there devils? Was there flames? Like, was there tails and pitchforks? You know, the seven levels that Dante imagined. The Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about what hell is really like. <clears throat> Calvin, believe it or not, not John Calvin, uh, from the 15th century, actually helped us out with this. He says that this refers to the moment on the cross when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Calvin says in his book, The Institute of Christian Theology, he says this, Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God. And when you call upon him to not be heard, it is as if God himself had plotted your ruin. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross in that moment. 
as far as Christ's experience was concerned, he lost everything that he had with the Father, just as any lost soul in hell would. He lost God's presence. He lost God's favor. favor. He lost God's communion, communication, and therefore any sense of the feeling of God's love. The Bible says that God is love. And when you remove God from the equation, it is a loveless place. And that is what hell is. It is a place where God's love does not exist. And that is what Jesus died to save us from. That is what Jesus died to save us from. Now let's make this kind of personal. The creed, and really all of Scripture, stand against all the narratives that this world has to offer. We've said this a few times. It's like a big, fancy book-sounding statement. All the stories, or another way of saying it, all the isms that this world wants you to buy into. Communism, socialism, uh, we're going to talk about two of them here in a second, legalism and uh, intellectualism. These are ways of thinking about how life works and what's important, and they want us to live their way. Then the Bible and the creed stand against those things, and they teach us an opposite story. This specific line stands against the two that I just mentioned, intellectualism and legalism. Now, let's talk about intellectualism. First of all, I'm not saying that we're a pack of morons. You guys with me? The Bible stands against intellectualism, but we are not a pack of morons, okay? The Bible actually calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind, right? Use your brains, folks. So we're talking about this story. That's why we're talking about these facts, because God wants us to use our minds. But intellectualism doesn't just say, you know, it's, it's not a, an A or B or black or white. And if you're either intellectual or you're not intellectual, intellectualism says that we can solve the problems of our world if we just put our mind to it, right? You guys know, you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You guys know this song? It's one of my favorite all-time songs. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd just in case you didn't hear it. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd, but you can be happy if you have a mind to. All you got to do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. And a cheer rose up from the crowd. Woo! It was my solo for the day. That's intellectualism. That If there is a problem, you just put your mind to it, you can solve it. But I got to tell you that the Bible teaches us that there is no amount of good thinking there's no amount of hard work or effort that is going to solve the problem that humanity is facing, that is going to take the sin that our world has, which we don't want to talk about, which we don't want to call it sin, but this spiritual problem that is deeply embedded in us. There is no amount of thinking our way out of it. We can get our man to the moon, but we can't make that man stop wanting what he shouldn't have. And the second one is legalism. Legalism says that I can be good at being good and solve the problem, right? If I just obey the laws, if I just obey the rules, I can be good enough to solve the problem. But the Bible teaches us that there is nobody who is good enough at being good enough to ever solve the problem that we have. And what happens is we wind up just covering up the brokenness that we have inside. We just wind up hiding those things We just wind up, like, instead of dealing with the family brokenness, instead of dealing with the alcoholism that my grandfather handed my mother and that my mother handed me and my sisters, 
or sister. I only have one of them. I don't have two. Uh, you know, this, this sense of, of addiction that flows through our family, instead of dealing with that, we ignore it and we hide from it and we just work on being good enough. And the Bible says there is no solution for sin through thinking your way out of it. There is no solution for sin for working your way out of it. The only way through this is through the death of Jesus Christ who atones us to God, who makes it right, who kills sin. When I was 22 years old, I was diagnosed with cancer. Many of you know this, some of you don't. Some of you are like, wow, that's amazing. You were cancer when you were 22. It doesn't make you any more amazing. It just makes you younger when you were sick. That was funny. That'll roll through you guys later. One of the things I may not have ever talked about in this story, though, about going through the cancer and the things, the anger and all the stuff that I walked through, um, is my own stupidity in the midst of cancer. I was diagnosed at 22 years old with a, a, a tumor on my neck. And it was a, a Hodgkin's lymphoma tumor. My lymph gland had become cancerous. It swole up. It infected several other lymph glands. And this particular form of cancer is very aggressive. It'll actually run. It's like a highway in your lymph system in your body. And it will run from place to place. And it started over here on my left neck, which is how the doctor said it. Tumor, left neck. You know, it's very clinical. So here's the thing about it, though. I was diagnosed at 22, but I have a picture of me at 19 years old where the left side of my neck is swollen. I had symptoms from ni- between ni- the year age 19 and the age of 22 of lethargy, of t- just tiredness. I can't sleep at night, but I can't get up in the morning. Um, I'm vomiting all the time. I get every single cold or sickness or disease that goes around anybody. You know, if somebody in China coughs, I catch it. Um, I, I would get bloody noses in my classes that would last for hours. I would vomit blood occasionally. And you know what I did? Nothing. I did nothing. I went home into Montana one day, and my neck is like swollen up like I'd swallowed a pumpkin. And my mom goes, hey, do you think you should go to the doctor? Nah, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. And then I go to the doctor. like, yeah, there's something wrong with you. You better go see somebody in Seattle. So I go to somebody in Seattle. Like, yeah, there's something wrong with you. We better, take, we better cut this out of you. And they cut it out of me, and they say, yeah, there's something wrong with you. You've got to go see the cancer doctor. My own idiocy in the process was to completely ignore the symptoms of the sickness in my life. Friends, we don't like talking about sin. It's not in vogue. I could make a T-shirt that says sin isn't cool, you know, and it could have all kinds of multiple meanings and multiple layers. We want sin to be private. We want our brokenness to be something we don't talk about. We want it to be not real, just like I didn't want my cancer or my sickness to be real. But we still struggle. We still hurt. We still fail to do the things that we want to do, to be the people we want to be. Even people who don't believe in God are struggling. We struggle in our relationships, in our addictions, in our anger, in our rage. There is something wrong with the world, and it is in me too. So the question that both believers in Jesus and non-believers alike have to ask is what's to be done about it? What do we do about it? You can work hard. You can work so hard. You can come up with the best thoughts and the best ideas and try your hardest to make this world the best place possible. You can try real hard to be perfect, to follow all the rules, to to say the right things, to be the right way, but you will fail. You can protest. 
You can vote. You can get involved in politics. You can get involved in, in immigrant rights. You can get involved in, 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 in legal issues and, and, uh, and poverty issues and, and, and slavery issues and sexual slavery issues and all of these things and, and go out and try to make a difference, but you will never heal the hurt. It'll never happen. Now, I don't want you to not do these things because I believe God calls us into them to be his hands and feet. But we can put our mind to it we can get involved in the issues. We can vote, and I encourage you to do it, but we will never, ever, ever solve the problem of this sickness by thinking about it or by working it. In the end, the only cure for cancer is to go to the doctor. And that is why Jesus is called the great physician. We've been spending time in silence, which we have time to do this morning. Um, at the end of our messages, if you're a guest with us, we've been taking um, a minute full 30, uh, 60 seconds, 30 seconds. I'm still working on math. Um, spending a full minute just sitting in silence, allowing the Holy Spirit, because that's who's talking to us, to speak to us. And we're going to do that this morning. And I want to ask you this question, whether you're far from God or you're close to God, whether you believe in spiritual things or you're just exploring them, if they exist at all, if you've been a Christian for 50 years or 15 seconds, I want to ask you this question. What struggle are you facing, and how are you trying to heal it? What struggle are you facing, and how are you trying to heal it? And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us in this moment. And then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're actually going to sing that last song, This is Amazing Grace, because the cross teaches us that not only did Jesus atone for our sins, he did it willingly, and he did it freely. It was an act of grace, a free gift, and we can be reconciled to God. So let's take a minute in silence and just listen to the Lord. Maybe you want to write that down in your notes. What is it, what struggle are you facing, and how are you trying to heal it? Team, would you guys come now? I've been thinking about the Apostle Paul, and I don't know if you guys know his story or not. He used to be named Saul, and he was a religious guy who really believed that you could do all the right things and get into heaven. And if you worked really hard, that you would find salvation. Part of what he wanted to do in order to do the right things 
was to kill anybody who taught something different than he believed. And so he started attacking Christians, and he started leading basically pogroms against Christians in, in those early days of Christianity. He stood back and he watched the first Christian martyr. He held everybody's coats while they were throwing rocks and killing him. He was bloodthirsty and he was ruthless. He is basically one of those ISIS guys. He's one of those ISIS guys. When you look on the news and you see those ISIS guys out there, I bet you, I would bet you, because my first thought is not, hey, that guy would make a great missionary. Right? That guy would make the best missionary ever. But when God looked at Saul, he said, that guy, that murderer, that violent, vile man is going to be my first real missionary. And this guy is going to plant more churches than you can imagine. He's going to go throughout the whole world and he's going to die a horrible death at the end of his life for my name's sake. Nobody is beyond the power of the cross. So this morning as we sing this song, this is Amazing Grace, I want to invite you to come to the cross. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ before in your life, or if you've like wandered away, or the message didn't mean anything to you, and you're like in this moment, like, yeah, I'm struggling with a mess, and I need Jesus to heal it. I just want to invite you to come to the backspace back there. Russ and Janie are back there, and they want to pray with you. I'm going to join them back there. Um, we're going to worship the Lord for his amazing grace, but I want to invite you to come and receive that amazing grace. If it's the first time, it's the 50th time, we keep coming to Jesus, and we keep being healed. Would you join me back there? Let's stand together. That we are destined for a relationship with you that is free from the struggles and from the breaks that we experience here and now. And that we are destined to eternal life with you. God, I thank you that you rescued us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. I thank you that you took the cross for us because even if we died on the cross, it wouldn't be enough to, to atone for the things that we've done, that humanity has done. And yet you did it for us. God, we receive that now. We receive your grace. We receive your love. And we pray, Lord, that we would be instruments of it. In your name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.